Hey, good morning. My name is Matt Nickerson. I'm the lead pastor here at Kingsway Christian Church. It's a blessing to be here with you today. We have a guest speaker today. His name is Dr. Johnny Presley. Dr. Presley used to be one of my uh, professors when I was at Bible College back a while ago. And uh, it is a blessing to have him here today talking about Revelation chapter 7, when we all get to heaven. What's it going to be like? What's it going to look like? So if you guys would give a nice, warm Kingsway welcome to Dr. Johnny Presley. Well, thank you very much. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back with you once again and the opportunity to speak to you. And I'm especially enjoying your theme that you've got developed for this series on, on the book of Revelation. Revelation has been a book that we're all intrigued by. Sometimes we feel like, though, we don't really understand it. It, it. It's good to get a chance to go back and look at it again and see if we can learn something from it. I've been teaching it as a class in, in college settings uh, since 1983, so I've had a lot of years to think about it, to try to work through it and make sense out of it. And so it's a pleasure to come and share some of my ideas with you. Now, this afternoon, 2 o'clock, we're going to have a, a workshop, and I'm going to deal with chapters 4 and 5 and try to make them as practical and real as I can for you as we talk about heavenly worship and a whole host of other things as well. Also, I'm going to leave time at the end for questions, and it can be anything, book of Revelation, from chapter 1 to chapter 22. You got a question? Show up this afternoon and enjoy the workshop, and then you get your chance to ask the question. I'll give you the best answer that I can. So, hope you'll come out and join us for that. But in the meantime, let's take care of business right now, because I want to speak to you from Revelation chapter 7, verses 14 through 17 as our focus as we talk about when we all get to heaven. Now, while you're locating that text in your scripture, let me tell you a story. Uh, back a long time ago when I was a, a young professor and I was dealing with students at the college where I was teaching, I had an evening where I was playing games with them. We, we were in a large room. I had them sitting in a circle so we could see each other. And I had uh, several games, but one of the games that we played was a pantomime-style game. Basically, what I want them to envision is picture an invisible ball that could be shaped into any object you want it to be, and, and the rules of the game were you take it and you turn it into something, and without saying a word, you first use it and give people a chance to guess what it is, and then after they've had a chance to guess, you hand it to the person next to you. They have to first use it as you gave it to them, and then they could squeeze it into something they wanted it to be. And once again, we'll try to guess what they're doing, and then you pass it to the next person who will use it and then turn it into something else. Now, these being college students, they wanted to be funny. So they're creating all types of funny things, and we're having a good laugh as it goes around the circle. But eventually it comes to a fellow. He was a senior in college, and he had gotten the chair next to a girl that he's been pursuing. Now, she didn't have much use for him, but it doesn't matter. The chair was there, and he grabbed it, and he was there next to her. So when it came around and it was his turn, he first took what was handed to him, and he had to use it, so he did. And then he got to turn to anything he wanted. So what he did was he created a circle, and then he dropped to one knee and took her hand and slipped it on her finger just like that. Oh, everybody looked at that, thought that was great. But now it's her turn to do something, and so she did. She stood, she pulled it, and tossed it. <laughs> just like that. Now, not a word was spoken. But we knew exactly what he was thinking, and we knew what she was thinking just by watching. The book of Revelation is something like that. The book of Revelation is drama. We, we speak of visions, and every chapter is a vision, but it's really actors coming out on a heavenly stage, and they act out a drama. 
And then you, the reader, the audience, you're supposed to watch the drama and then see if you can figure out what the spiritual truths are, what, what God is trying to teach us. It's like the parables of Jesus. Jesus told stories, but those were stories that had spiritual truths, that they meant something, and you're supposed to figure out what they mean. And that's how you should read the book of Revelation. Look for the spiritual truths, the lessons we can learn from those visions. Now, some of them are more challenging and difficult. Some are easier. This is one of the easy ones, at least I think so. Because in verse 9, here's what John describes for us. He said, I, I saw a great multitude in heaven that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They're gathered before the throne of God and before the Lamb. They're dressed in white robes. They're holding palm branches, and they're singing a song of praise. They cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who's seated upon the throne and to the Lamb. Now, I look at that. I think I already know what it is. I think you do too. This looks like a vision of that day when we all get to heaven. The saints of all the ages of all times, and we're gathered around the throne, we finally made it. We've made it to the thing that we were looking for. We're dressed in white, which of course is a symbol of purity, but in this book it's also a symbol of victory that, that we've won. And they're holding palm branches, a symbol of worship and praise, like on that Palm Sunday when they took their palm branches and they worshiped Jesus. This looks like the day when we finally make it. Now, in verse 13, one of the 24 elders turns to John the apostle and says to him, so these who are dressed in white, who are they? And where'd they come from? Now, John, I think, comes up with a very good answer. That is, he doesn't even try to guess. I mean, he's the apostle John. He could probably come up with a pretty good guess, but he knows he'll learn more if he lets his guide explain it to him. So he says, sir, I'm sure that you know who they are. And he gives his guide the opportunity to tell him. Well, verse 14 is the answer. Verse 14 says, these are they who've come out of great tribulation. They, they've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I want to take that verse and I want to show you something this morning. Because I would imagine that in this room, every one of you are hoping that one day you'll be gathered with this crowd in heaven, that you're part of this vision gathered around the throne, enjoying our salvation for the rest of eternity through Jesus Christ. And if that's what you want, then you can learn from verse 14 what it is you've got to do. Now, here's what you've got to do first. You've got to get off to a good start. A good start. You know, anything you set out to do, any path you set out upon, it, it always begins with a beginning, a, a good start. If you never start, you'll never get to a, an end, and so you have to have the good start. And the phrase in verse 14 that I want you to key in upon is where he says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, in the days when John wrote this book of Revelation into the first century, the Roman Empire had a whole bunch of religions, and they had all types of strange practices, especially blood rituals. Oh, they like to use blood in some of those different religions. And some of these groups we refer to as the mystery cults. They were the smaller groups, more secretive you couldn't join unless they invited you, and if you joined, you had to swear that you wouldn't tell anybody what goes on. Occasionally, somebody would leave, though, and tell what happened. And we know something about these groups, especially some of their initiation rituals. To join the group, you went through a series of rituals, and they often involved blood. You might have to drink blood, or they might kill a large animal, and then you took the blood, and you completely covered your body, immersed yourself with blood. Now, I don't know about you, but I know what I'm thinking. If, if I had to do a blood ritual of that sort to join Christianity, I'm not sure I could pass the test. I'd pass out. I'm not into blood. Don't, don't care for it. Don't want it all over me. 
But you know, in Christianity, you don't have to do anything like that. Now, we'll talk about blood. We talk about blood all the time. We, we sing about it, the blood of the Lamb, and, and we have uh, songs about it. We'll preach about it. But, you know, we don't actually do real blood because the real blood was what was shed on the cross. What, what we do is we talk about the death of Christ and celebrate the death of Christ. And so, for example, in the Lord's Supper, we do it with symbolism. We'll take that piece of bread, and it represents his body broken. And, and we'll take the cup of juice, and that represents the blood that he shed when he died on the cross for our salvation. And we'll remember his blood and remember his death, his sacrifice, by this symbol of the Lord's Supper. Likewise, we've got another activity in the church that also has symbolic value for us, and that's baptism. Because in Christian baptism, we symbolize his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and our getting a chance to join in with him and receive the benefits of his salvation. And that's why Paul says what he does in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. All of you who've been baptized, you were buried with him in baptism and then raised to a brand new life. And that's a great way of picturing what we do when we get started on this path with the Lord. We, we start off with repentance and faith, and then we are dunked in the waters and brought back out. And when you do, you have taken that old life of sin and said goodbye to it and raised to a brand new life. And that's a great way of describing that good start that so many of us have done. Also, we associate with that cleansing because that's what we want. We want the blood of the Lamb, the death of Christ, to cleanse us of our sins. And we believe God's promise. That if we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, and if we are buried with Him, raised with Him, we believe the promise that He will cleanse us of our sins by the blood of the Lamb. That's why I like what's said in Acts twenty-two sixteen when Saul the persecutor, you know him as the Apostle Paul, but back then Saul the persecutor, he comes to the preacher, he says, what do I need to do? And the preacher says, rise up, be baptized, and let's wash away your sins. Oh, if you've responded to the gospel invitation, if you've done what the Scriptures ask us to do, then you have God's promise. We have confidence in His Word that our sins have been washed away, that we have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, most of you in this room, I suspect you've done that sometime in the past. Good for you. But there may be a few. There may be someone this day who's been thinking about it. You've been considering it, but you haven't done it yet. I want you to remember, we always have an open invitation. There's always the invitation for you to come forward and for you to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, to, to repent of your sins and confess your faith and be baptized into Christ, and then enjoy that promise that your sins are washed away. You've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Folks, if you want to be part of that great gathering in heaven one day, you know what you've got to do. You've got to get off to a good start, and you've got to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, there's a second part to this passage because if you want to make it to that grand finale, you, you've got to not only have a good start, but you've got to have a strong finish. You've got to stay the course all the way to the very end. The phrase he used in verse 14, I want you to notice, is when he says, these are the ones who have come through great tribulation. Now, I will tell you, sometimes when people today read Revelation, especially a verse like that, their minds immediately go to some end-time scenario that they envision. You know, there's a lot of people out there, they got their charts of what's going to happen at the end times. N no one chart matches any other chart. Everybody's got their own ideas of what's going to happen at the end as they lay out those last years. I don't get into that kind of stuff. I'm one of those who figures it'll happen when it happens, however it happens. All I got to do is take care of today. I got to mind my business, take care of today. A and when the end comes, we can finally look and see, did anybody get it right? Probably no one got it for all I care. You, you see, basically, God's in charge of the end. Right now, I take care of today and do my work for the Lord. 
And so when they read the phrase great tribulation, some like to imagine a great tribulation period, a very special time of suffering. But I don't think that's what John really had in mind when he said that phrase. If I read John's writing carefully, I, I think for John, great tribulation is something we all endure even now. Not just at the end, but right now we suffer great tribulation. You know, go back to chapter 1, verse 9, when John is introducing himself to his readers. He says, I'm John, and I share with you in three things, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Those three things are really the theme of the book of Revelation. It describes what you're going to be reading in all the chapters. First, tribulation, troubles, and suffering. What John will show you in this book is life is filled with all manner of suffering. There's all types of tribulations that we face, and that's just a fact of life. This world is a place of troubles, and you're going to have to live through those troubles. But the next thing is kingdom. We all have this hope of one day leaving this world of trouble and getting to this kingdom of heaven, standing around the throne of God, celebrating our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to move from the tribulations of this world to the joys of the kingdom of heaven, then you need that third piece perseverance, faithfulness, where you faithfully continue to follow Christ even through the troubles of this life until finally you make it to the finish line and then He welcomes you into the, the kingdom with all the blessings that are there. To go from trouble to blessing, you've got to persevere. And that's really what the book of Revelation then does for all of its chapters. It uses creative imagery, pictures of the troubles of life, and then encourages you to remain faithful and to never give up, never quit but make it all the way to the end. And so, for example, John has some very clever ways in these visions to show us the tribulations of life. Take, for example, in chapter 6 of Revelation, the Lamb who's got the scroll with seven seals, and as Jesus pops open a seal, unfolding before us is some kind of tribulation. And most of the time we recognize exactly the kind of suffering that He is portraying for us. Take, for example, seal number 2. Seal number 2 is a rider on a red horse, He's got a, a great sword, and he goes forth to wage war. I've got that one figured out, so do you. This is a symbol of war. And if you're asking, now which war? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's a symbol of war, because here's what he's saying. In this earth, there'll be times of war, conflict between nations and men. And when war comes, being a Christian does not give you a special exemption so that when others are dying, you survive because, well, I'm a Christian. Have you ever noticed that is the reality? That when the bullets are flying and the bombs are dropping, being a Christian doesn't necessarily keep you from getting killed. That we'll have funeral services in our churches for good Christian men and women who died out serving their country. You see, there's no special exemption for believers just because you're a believer. No, when troubles come, when tribulation hits, you've got to suffer through it just like everybody else in this world. And sometimes Christians die. Seal number three, here's a rider on a horse. He's, he's got scales. He's trying to balance the scales, but he's having a hard time because on one side, he's got a, a day's wages. I worked for a day, but the, the, what he gets paid doesn't quite give him enough to even feed himself sometimes, let alone try to feed his family, and he's having a hard time making ends meet. Boy, that's a symbol we recognize because sometimes life is like that. We'll have an economic turn down, and next thing you know, it's, it's hard to get the spending value of our money. We lose our assets, and it's hard to make a living, hard to survive, hard to take care of ourselves. Or, or maybe the, the jobs, we're losing jobs, and there's a layoff at the factory. And, and have you noticed that when these things happen, it doesn't just happen to the unbelievers of the world, but we, we always are okay. No, no. If they're firing at the job, it's Christians as well as non-Christians who get fired. 
And if the money doesn't spend as much as it used to, it's the Christian as well as the non-Christian who suffers with the economy. You see, this is just a fact of life. You get no special exemption from tribulation. The fact is, Revelation says you've got to work through, get through the tribulation, faithful to Christ, and then he's got blessings waiting for you at the other side. Seal number four, I think about seal number four when I get on an airplane. Uh, this past week, I flew up, up here from, from Mexico. I was down there teaching, and, and I thought about seal number four because, you see, seal number four is death and Hades. That's what we're told. Now, this is death on a large scale when an event happens and a lot of people die all at once. Now, you know, we're kind of accustomed to death just being a fact of life, and, and people die every day, all through the day, people die. But what we're used to is death where you live to a ripe old age, and then you die, and we know that day's coming. What we don't ever get used to is the idea that I might have my life cut short, die earlier than that, that I might be in some event where death comes and there's no escape, we, we all die. And we hear on the news then death in large numbers, hundreds or thousands died because of something that happened. Like, for example, flying on an airplane. And there's 200-something on the plane, but if the plane crashes, listen, being a Christian doesn't mean I just walk away while everybody else dies. No, I, I, I die with the rest of them. Or being in a building and it catches on fire and we're trapped and we all die. Or being in a building and planes crash into it and we die. And there's something about those kind of deaths that unnerves us. Because on the one hand, I, I'm ready for the living my full life and then dying. But there's something about being caught somewhere where I'm not in control. And death comes and there's nothing I can do and, and we die with the rest. So whether it be an earthquake over here or a tsunami over there, when that hits the news and they tell us about the hundreds and the thousands that die, oh, we're, we're riveted by that. And we want to hear more and we want to see the videos because we know what it's like to be in a situation and then to have something like that happen and there's nothing you can do. And being a Christian does not exempt you from death. That's what John's trying to teach in this book. He shows you the kinds of tribulation that this life will throw at you and then reminds you that if you're going to live in this world, you're going to have to face these things. It's just a fact of life. Now, here's the thing. What he wants you to do is to be faithful, to persevere, to never give up, never quit, but to stay true to God all the way to the very end so that you can receive the promises of heaven. You know how it works, though. Sometimes we've had people, they start with us, and they're in church with us. They've been baptized, and they're worshiping with us for a while, but some tragedy comes in their life. Someone dies, some other thing that hurts them. The next thing you know, they kind of retreat. They fade away. They disappear. Folks, that's not the way you do it. When hardships come, you don't pull back from God. If anything, you draw closer to God and to God's Word and to God's people. And that's where we get the strength to help us work through the tribulation of this life. Because if we ever want to make it to that grand finale, we've got to stay faithful and true to the path we've chosen. We've got to finish to the very end, faithful to God. What you need is a, is a faith like Job. Now, Job, when he dealt with his tribulations, his suffering, most of us only know the first two chapters. We read the first two, and then we quit. You haven't really seen Job yet. In the first two chapters, Job gets all these tribulations and sorrows that come upon him. But Job says all the nice words. Oh, this is the will of God, and we have to accept the will of God. Now, he only does that in the first two chapters. Later, his emotions start to kick in. He starts to deal with all this suffering, and he doesn't like it. And he'll work through those stages of grief. He'll even get to anger angry with God. Why are you doing this to me? This is not right. I don't deserve this. I'm a good man, and this should not be happening to me. And, and when Job says that, now that's the real Job. That's, that's me and you. 
Because when suffering comes, we're not smiley and happy. We may put on a face, but no. Inside, we're struggling. We're dealing with it. Anger and grief and sorrow, and that's honest human emotions. But you know, the faith of Job shows up in those days because when he is expressing how he feels to God, here's what he'll say. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this, man. I don't know why you're doing it, but you're still my God. You're the only God, and I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. You'll still be my God. Now, when you can say that, that's the faith of Job. I don't like what's happening to me. I don't know why it's happening to me, but I'm not going to give up and quit. I'm going to stay the course and stay with God. Now, that's what faith sounds like in times of tribulation. That's perseverance. That's what you've got to do if you want to make it to that happy ending of the blessing of heaven. You've got to stay faithful and persevere. You know, I like to think of the Christian life as a marathon. You know how a marathon works? I, I run marathons for fun. You may have a different understanding of how marathons work. My wife doesn't use the word fun when she describes what I do. 26.2 miles of running. She calls it crazy. But I see it as a challenge. And I believe I can finish it. Uh, it's, marathons are designed not for the young and the, and, and the healthy. It's designed for ordinary people like, like, like me. And when you get out in a marathon, you don't race against anybody else. Oh, no, no. You just want to see if you can go from point A to point B. Can I finish the course and cross the finish line? And if that involves slowing down the pace or taking some time to walk, you do it. Because the key to a marathon is that anybody who crosses the finish line gets a finisher's medal. Now, in the shorter races, it's only the first place, second place, third place that might get anything, but not with marathons. With marathons, whoever crosses the finish line gets a finisher's medal because you toughed it out and made it to the end. You know, I think the Christian life is more like that. It's not a short sprint where only a few people win. No, it's a long race, and everybody who toughs it out and gets through the tribulation and makes it to the end, you get the finisher's medal. Or as Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life, the, the, the finisher's prize. Folks, that's how it works if you do the Christian life right. And that is you face whatever tribulations come. And you stay faithful and true to Christ and never give up and never quit. And then you cross that finish line and there's a great prize waiting for you. Or if you do the good start and the strong finish, there's a happy ending. And that's what John describes in verses 15, 16, and 17. Now, later in the book of Revelation, he'll take two chapters, 21 and 22, and he'll describe heaven to you with a lot of details. But here in just these three verses, he gives you a quick peek at what heaven is like. And I like what he describes. First, he describes the fellowship of God as we stand in his presence. Verse 15 says, regarding all of us who are dressed in white around the throne, he says, they are before his throne. They will serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits upon the throne will spread his tent over them. Now, that's three different phrases, but each one picks up on this idea of you being in the presence of God, enjoying fellowship with God. Take, for example, that first phrase, they are before his throne. You know, in this life, we live with, with a God we cannot see, our five senses can't get a hold of him, but by faith, we believe he's there. But can you imagine that day when we don't have to just believe he's there, he's there. And, and we see him in all his glory as we stand before the throne, or as the scriptures like to say, and we stand there face to face with God and with Jesus Christ our Savior. What a great day that'll be. And, and that's part of the joy of heaven is to be in that more intimate presence of God and fellowship with God than we've ever known. Or how about that second picture? And they will serve him day and night in his temple. Now, you remember the Old Testament, the Old Testament temple? 
Now, if you went to the temple of God, which, which symbolized his presence, you had to stay out in the outer court. You weren't permitted to actually go inside the building where God's presence was. You just got to be close and see it from a little bit of a distance. If you were a priest, they'd let you go in the first chamber and, and do some of the services of the first chamber, but you could not go into the inner chamber. That's where the presence of God was. You had to see it from a distance. If you were the high priest, you were the one person who could go into the presence of God one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, and then you only got to stay for a few minutes, and then you had to come back out and once again see it from a distance. You know what God says? When you get to heaven, I'm going to invite you to come on in, all of you. Come on into this inner chamber, and not just for a few minutes, but you'll stay here. Day and night, you'll stay here forever. Oh, he invites us into his presence. That sounds good. And then it says, and he who sits upon the throne will spread his tent over them. Now, when you hear the word tent, you may be thinking, hey, I thought we were going to have mansions in the sky. What a bummer. We're going to live in tents? Oh, this is not describing where you're going to live. This is the imagery of fellowship. Go back to the days of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they lived in tents. And not some big circus tent that everybody lived in. No, no, no. Everybody had their individual tents. Abraham would have his tent. His wife would have hers. The older children would have their tents. The extended relatives would all have their tents, the servants. It was a caravan of tents. But if Abraham wanted to spend an evening with his wife, he would invite Sarah to come into his tent, and then husband and wife would enjoy an evening of intimacy. Or if one of the children was scared and, and said, Father, can I stay with you tonight? He'd invite his child into his tent, and the child would sleep peacefully in the tent. Or maybe an old friend come passing by on his camel from the old hometown, and Abraham would say, oh, we got so much to talk about. Come on into my tent, and let's sit here up all night, and let's talk. You see, to be invited into someone's tent is to be invited into their presence and enjoy fellowship with them. And God says, when you get to heaven, I'm going to open up my tent and invite you to come on in. You see, all three of these little pictures he gives you are pictures of we'll leave this life where by faith we serve him, and now by sight we'll come on in and enjoy the fellowship of God in a way like we've never experienced before. Boy, that sounds good. That's what happens when we get to heaven. Th there's another thing that happens when we get to heaven. Not only will we enjoy the fellowship of God, we'll enjoy the goodness of God. That's what happens in the next verses. He says, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst, and the sun will not beat down upon them, nor any scorching heat, because the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and lead them to the springs of living water. You know, that's words from Isaiah, but that's the words that book of Revelation uses time and time again to describe heaven. And, and you're familiar with that, with the way Revelation does it. Put the no and then start saying no more hunger, no more thirst, no more pain, no more suffering, no more weeping and mourning. Folks, listen, you can make your own list. Make a list of all the troubles of this life you've ever experienced. Put down a list of all the tribulations and then put a big no in front of it, and that's heaven. Because when we get to heaven, those things are left behind, and we will enjoy the goodness of God as He unloads His blessings upon us. Now, I'm not quite sure how that all works, how He deals with all these things. For example, no more hunger and no more thirst. I can imagine one possibility these new heavenly bodies we have, they don't require food. I, I can imagine another possibility that we get to heaven, there's buffet tables everywhere, and if God puts it to a vote, I'm voting for the second plan. I just like the idea. I, I like the idea that we would sit around and eat good food and laugh and talk and have a good time. Wouldn't that be great? But you know what? It doesn't matter how he does it. What matters is he's going to do it. That whatever in this life you were lacking and wanting, whatever was hurtful and 
whatever was the tribulation of this life, those are gone. And he unloads his bountiful blessings. Now I'm thinking, that sounds good. But you know, there's more to heaven than that. Not just his, the fellowship of God and the goodness of God, but there is the comfort of God. And that's what he says in the last sentence of verse 17. God will wipe the tears from your eyes. Now, what we often will say is, there's no tears in heaven, and then that's okay. I like what John said better, because John describes something that is a deep, intimate kind of comfort. You know, when you're suffering, when your heart is broken and you're grieving, and friends come and try to console you, there's different ways of, of bringing comfort. One way is with words, to stand there and say, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry for what happened. And words are good. You know what's better than words? Touch. They take your hand and hold your hand while they talk to you. That's an extra element of comfort. Or just take their arms and just give you a good old hug and pat you on the back. Don't even have to say words, but boy, that feels good to have somebody give you a good hug. So can you imagine a friend who loves you so much and is so comfortable with you that when you're grieving, they put their arm around you and they take their finger. And as a tear is coming down your cheek, they take the finger and wipe the tear off your cheek. You can just imagine how that feels. It settles into the soul a comfort so deep. Because that's what God says He'll do. You'll go through this life of tribulation. You'll go through the sufferings of this earth. I'll be waiting for you when you get on the other side. And you'll get your big hug. And you'll get the tears wiped away from your cheek. And you'll have a comfort that will settle deep into your soul. That will be so powerful that it will wipe away all of your sorrows and griefs. And it will last forever. I mean, that's what God promises. And who in this room couldn't enjoy something like that? Because life does bring so much sorrow and so many losses we have to deal with. And, and we deal with it. But we're looking forward to the day when God gets rid of all of those things and blesses us with, with His fellowship and with His goodness and with His comfort. You know, if I ask the question, how many of you want that? I think every one of you say, I want that. I want to be part of that. Yes, of course we do. But you've got to do something about it. You've got to get off to the good start with faith and repentance and baptism and get that path toward heaven started. And, and then you've got to live faithful all the way, every day of your life, through the tribulation of this life, faithful to the very end as you cross that finish line. And then you enjoy these blessings of heaven. You know, my word of encouragement from you today from the book of Revelation is this, that you stay the course, that you remain faithful and true. Because I hope that this is not the last time we're together. I'm hoping that up in heaven around the throne, every one of us in this room will be there and we'll still look around and see each other and we'll enjoy all the things God has in store for us. And you can, every one of you can, but you've got to remain faithful and true to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's the word of encouragement we received this morning from the book of Revelation. Let me pray for you. Our Father God in heaven, we're so grateful. Grateful that in your word, you give us these, these pictures, beautiful pictures, that teach us lessons, lessons about how to live our lives today so that we can one day enjoy forever with you. We're grateful for the promises of your word. And Father, we pray that your spirit will encourage our soul, strengthen us, encourage us, so that every day, no matter how tough it gets, that we stay true to you so that one day we can finish the course, faithful and true, and then enjoy the blessings that you have reserved for us in heaven. We thank you, Father, for all things through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and we pray in his holy name. Amen. God bless you.